oh gosh, I understand now. Society's kind of made me feel like crap about myself being a woman and I'm being hard on myself and I'm thinking that I can't do this and I'm not smart enough for this job. Probably am. I just need to believe it, right? Hi, and welcome to the Waking Youth Podcast. My name is Carlotta Getsch, I'm your host, and my guest today is Christina Bernard. Body image, eating disorders, self-esteem are just some of the many topics we cover. Dive in with us if you too want to break free from internalized oppression and become the beautiful, confident and powerful human being you already are. Let me begin by asking you a little bit about your story. Um, I know you do a lot of things and you did a lot of things already as well. You're a management professional with a background in social impact. You were a political appointee for the Obama administration. You're the co-founder and president of the nonprofit Open Dreams. And you're the executive director at MZingo U, where I met you more recently doing, I believe, more recently doing some work on women empowerment. But you're also a mother. So just walk us a little bit through your story. Who is Christina? <laughs> Great question, and I love it because that's usually my first interview question whenever I'm meeting with uh, new individuals. Um, so yeah, um, first of all, to all of you hearing that, don't get intimidated. <laughs> don't feel bad about yourself because I know that feeling very well, okay? Um, and it doesn't all sound as glamorous as it might uh, reading off a paper. Um, no, uh, so to, to give you a little insight, So I'm actually um, born to Cuban immigrant parents. Um, it, my parents came from Cuba in 1961, and they settled in Washington, D.C. Um, actually, my father, thankfully, was able to receive a, a full scholarship to study architecture at Catholic University. Um, and that's how we kind of all landed in the D.C. area. Um, I am the baby of 10 children which I think is a really important part of who I am, um, from a very loud Cuban-American family, um, and actually came after four boys, which I also think is an important part of my story. Um, I am, have three brothers who are right older than me, and then my sister had a son who is actually older than me. So it was growing up, it was four boys and myself nearly all the time, um, and I was actually raised by my father as my mother was a little bit too sick to take care of us. So um, kind of a unique upbringing in that way um, that I think impacts my story and that I saw the world not only through the lens of being a, a young woman, um, a huge tomboy and a big athlete, but also through kind of how my brothers saw the world and how differently at times that could be. Mm -hmm. That's really influenced who I am today. Um, was a big athlete, which I also believe really influences who I am. And the studies have shown that Getting young women involved in sports can have huge impact on their confidence levels. So I think about that a lot with my little girls. What did I play? I played, um, so in, in growing up, I played uh, field hockey, uh, basketball, softball, and swimming in the winter. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in college, actually, I went on to play rugby. So I played women's rugby at Carolina. We were actually ninth in the nation. One of the best in the South. Um, and I played women's rugby in grad school, too. Um, so kind of unique, but has had a really, really huge impact on who I am today. And I would say all my rugby women friends are still like my best friends for life. Um, so a really big bond. Okay. You grew up with boys, um, tomboy, you have a background in management, social impact. So can you walk us a little bit through that and also how you ended up uh, in women empowerment as well? Sure. Absolutely. So I kind of always knew, you know, being the children of immigrants and, and refugees, I always knew that I was really passionate and interested in kind of the international space and especially how the U.S. interacted with other countries and kind of cross-cultural immersion and cross-cultural com communication and kind of how culture impacts ourselves and our, our internal beings. And I um, studied, went down to UNC Chapel Hill, studied international relations for that reason the focus on politics um, and business mm -hmm. um, and always kind of knew and kind of my dream was probably to be the head of a nonprofit. I would say I've always kind of 
fallen into or taken on, I shall say, leadership roles growing up, um, whether that be like captain of sports teams or like SGA president, things like that. So I, um, you know, was very interested in 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 that that space of kind of international affairs and um, worked in kind of the traditional business sector for many years in in predominantly marketing and advertising and liked it, but didn't feel like at the end of the day, I was really doing anything to move the needle. And I wasn't really doing anything mm-hmm. to help anybody in their kind of day-to-day life and uh, making an impact. And I always knew that, you know, my life mission was was just to be in service to others in some respect, that I wanted to be helping others, that I, you know, wanted to, to use the quote, I wanted to use my privilege to sow justice, um, particularly because my my father was able to do pretty well as an immigrant in the United States, though it took me a while to realize it in some ways because he was a white Cuban um, man who came to the U.S. So he had a lot more opportunities than a lot of other um, darker skinned Latino immigrants. Um, and so I always felt like kind of the weight of this, like, um, you know, I had this one great professor in college who, who was from St. Martin and who told me, you know, knowledge is not only responsibility, sorry, excuse me, knowledge is not only power, but it's also a responsibility. Hmm. And I really felt that weight of the responsibility my whole life. Like, okay, I'm more aware about these issues going on in the world and I need to do something about it. And I've had a lot of privileges being a white Hispanic female immigrant that other immigrants haven't um, in my position. So I've always been quite aware of that and wanting to use whatever privilege I have, especially economic privilege and, and educational privilege and, and white skin privilege um, to to help others in any shape or form. So it took me kind of a while to get there. Um, and actually, I had some great advice from a friend's mother that, you know, coming out of college, I really wanted to work for a nonprofit right away. And, you know, she told me, you know, Christina, you know, uh, bleeding hearts don't necessarily make the best employees. Like if you really want to make change in this world, if you really want to do something, you have to have some hard skills first. Mm. And she said, you know, go out there, get some hard skills in the for-profit space and then transition that into the nonprofit space. And really when you have some value to give. So that was kind of the, you know, the path I took. Um, and, after many years working, I said, you know, I, I want to head now to what I really want to do. So I went back and got my master's in kind of international development out at London School of Economics. And that's where I kind of found this organization in Mzingo that I'm now the ex- executive director of. But I knew that I wanted to spend some time actually like on the ground working with organizations that were doing incredible work. Um, and so I, I got to do that with Mzingo going down to South Africa and working with an orphan and vulnerable children's center in Soweto, the oldest township in South Africa. And it was just a completely transformational experience for me in so many ways. And I felt like I had finally kind of found my passion. It was predominantly female uh, organization, female-led, female-run. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like uh, I really connected to the women I was working with um, and just felt like, you know, I found my passion, like consulting for nonprofits and kind of using my business background to help these organizations in any way I could um, to kind of, you know, increase their reach, increase their, their mission. Um, And really learned that, you know, those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I'm trying to remember where I got that quote from, but um, really saw that firsthand that, you know, you you go in there thinking, I'm going to try to make a difference, but really, it's, it's those within their own communities that know what the problems are and what the solutions should be. And it's about supporting them and making their solutions more effective and having a broader reach. Um, so it was really quite life-changing for me, uh, obviously. <laughs> and so I went on to um, work for Mzingo and have been here for on and off for seven years. Um, and in terms of your question about, you know, how did I get involved, particularly in women's empowerment, um, one thing I always struggled with, and you know a lot about this for my workshops, was my own kind of self-doubts and own kind mm. of self-limiting beliefs, just thinking, okay, I'm not smart enough to apply for this position. I'm not accomplished enough to go for this. No one will want to hear me speak because I don't have any experience, you know, heavy imposter syndrome, heavy, um, always kind of doubting, no matter no matter what I accomplished, always continuing to doubt myself, right? And always thinking that the next thing would finally make me feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, when I get, if, if I, well, it took me 
two years to even apply to work for the Obama administration and many interviews. And when I finally got a role, you know, me thinking, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, I've, I've done it. I've reached my kind of dream job and I'm never going to feel bad about myself again. Well, <laughs> that was a lie. <laughs> and so uh, very soon it was like, well, I'm working for Obama administration, but I'm not working in the White House. And then it's like, well, uh, when I, when the position ended, it's like, all my friends are going on to this organization and this, and what am I doing? Right. So I've really realized, um, you know, I've battled with these own self-esteem issues and, and uh, a lot of self-doubt and kind of um, overly critical internal self-voice mm-hmm. um, for my whole life, really, truthfully. Um, and it's getting a little better as I get older, so thank God. <laughs> but um, I've really taken the time to study it, to research it. And even especially, I would say, in my position at Mzingo, it's really shown me I've, I've had the opportunity to work with some incredible women of all ages. And, you know, because we focus on the next generation of, of leaders, you know, prominently women who are going to ascend to leadership roles if they're not in them now. Mm-hmm. So we work predominantly with MBA students and masters and kind of international development, international relations, and then um, undergraduate, predominantly business students, but also those involved in those kind of more international degrees. Um, Mm-hmm. Let me yeah. interrupt you there just to say that first of all, my my last guest before you was <laughs> So if you haven't paying attention out there, um you already know or are familiar with the, the work that Mzingo does. Um but before we explore that, why don't you tell us when did you become aware of all of this? Was there a turning point growing up? Because what I believe is that you don't really, and this is something we, we discussed a little bit in, in the workshop, you don't really get rid of all the insecurity and self-doubt just out of nowhere. But when was the point that you decided to take ownership um, of your life and to try to live a more empowered life when did you realize that you were not alone in this fight? Great, phenomenal question. You know, what's interesting um, to me is that, and, and what the research shows as well, is that um, young women in particular tend, often tend to thrive while they're still in school, right? While they're still in school, while they're in university. Um, and I would say that was definitely the case for me. I, I've, my dad always says, out of all my 10 children, you're the only one that loved school. You've always loved school. And it's true. I love learning. I love school. I loved my teachers loving me <laughs> because I was that student who always put my hand up first. So mm-hmm. coming from the home, I was totally the good girl. I mean, the extreme good girl, right? Um, and, you know, because I didn't really have a motherly figure at home, a lot of my teachers turned into those motherly figures for me. Um, and so I sought out their, I sought out their kind of their love even more so, right? I was always looking to be, quote, I was the teacher's pet, like through and through um, uh, my whole life. So I thrived um, in school situations. I even, you know, thrived in university. Um, but like many of the studies shows, it was really when I left university and I started looking at jobs and started looking at next steps is where I really struggled. Okay. And that's where it really, I just, I, where I really noticed, like, it didn't, it just doesn't even matter. Like, what grades I got in college or how well most of my professors liked me. It was like, I immediately thought like, Oh, I'm only qualified to apply for, you know, this kind of position or that kind of position. And I I didn't have the courage or the self-belief that I could, could go for other opportunities. I always felt like, well, I'm not smart enough to apply for that. And like the classic woman thing of like, I would look at a job description and unless I hit every bullet, I was like, I can't apply to this. Like I'm not qualified for that. So I always felt like I wasn't qualified for anything. I, you know, I, I stumbled into kind of a lot of like, you know, applying for, um, I don't want to demean anyone's professions, but applying for jobs that, um, you know, I think looking back, my skill set wasn't the right one for. Um, so, and I just spent a lot of years being kind of lost, very lost. And I think mm-hmm. what I'm realizing now more than ever is it took me many years to find a mentor to guide me through that, that self-doubt. And um, because I grew up mostly around men, uh, because I didn't really have a mother figure, 
at the time I wasn't quite as close to my cousins and my brothers hadn't gotten married yet. Okay. <laughs> and I bring that up for the point that who ended up being my mentors were my close cousins uh, later in life. My actually my sister-in-laws, my two sister-in-laws um, have been tremendously helpful in my journeys. Um, and so until they came along, until they came into the picture, my sister-in-law, Dominique, give a shout out to her who helped me so much and my sister-in-law, Gabrielle. Um, I didn't really, really know um, where to go. And I didn't have the self-belief to figure out where and what and how. And I bring that up because I think this is very true of minority women, uh, very true of uh, marginalized women from marginalized groups mm. uh, or from other parts of their marginalized identity. Um, and and from, from immigrants, wherever you might come from. Um, that we don't necessarily have the access to the networks or the mentors, or we don't think we do. We probably do if we searched a little harder, but we don't think that we do. So if you're out there and you're like me and maybe you're from an immigrant family or you're from a you know, marginalized background or mar part, part of one or part of your identities is marginalized, definitely encourage you to take the time to look um, and reach out and try to find those mentors. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I didn't have anybody really supporting me in that journey. I absolutely adore my father, but um, he was never very helpful with helping me figure out a career. I mean, he always told me, I don't know, Bella, because they call me Bella, family of, baby of the family in Spanish. I don't know, Bella, like I took some <laughs> tests in high school and it said you can either be an engineer or a architect. And I thought architecture was more interesting. So I became an architect, you know? So like that was my dad. He was an architect. So he could never really help. Like he had no idea. He never helped me look for universities. Shout out mm -hmm. to Harry. He took me to see all the universities and pick one, help me pick one. And he was like, I don't know. What's the difference between University of Maryland and Harvard? There's no difference. Like, which I love about that. My dad, he is not an elitist at any, in any shape or form. So it, I never really got any guidance from him. My older siblings were predominantly musicians and artists, which is fabulous. And they make some wonderful music. Um, but you know, that wasn't the path I was headed down. So it just didn't have enough people showing me where to go. So all that to say that I felt really lost and I felt really insecure about my next steps. And this is, this is when, when leaving college. Yeah. Leaving college. college. Yeah. First job. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of, I stumbled, I definitely stumbled through my early twenties, like not really sure where to go, not believing in myself enough not applying for positions I probably should have or gone for mm -hmm. and not spending the time to reflect on what I really wanted. Um, and, you know, then that came with a lot of anxiety and especially when I, you know, was like starting to get into my later twenties and wondering like, what am I going to do with my life? Um, and I always knew I wanted to go back for my master's. So when I, when I got in, when I went to LSE, I mean, that was a whole, Oh, applying to grad school. Goodness. Talk about some, insane self-doubt so that was that itself was a, a very high anxiety process um and actually i know what going to lse well i really wanted to go there i really wanted to be in london but also because they didn't require the sat or what was it the gre <laughs> so even though i consider myself you know mildly intelligent i uh i never did well on standardized tests so if you're out there too this is uh, there is so much inequity in standardized testing and if you're not getting the grades you want on them don't feel bad about yourself. And especially if you have a marginalized identity, um, do not feel bad about yourself and, you know, seek out the support you need and recognize it is an unfair system. And it definitely benefits people who have money and the access to pay for tutors and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I have so many questions for you. Um, but as you were speaking, I was thinking, even though you had all that self-doubt that you're just describing to me, um, You actually, you seem like you didn't let that um, that self-doubt, even though you didn't apply immediately to your dream job, let's say, it seems like you didn't let it completely stop you from doing something that was ambitious. How did you navigate uh, through that with all that insecurity? What made you um, hold on in that moment? Yeah. It's a really good question. Uh, it's a fabulous question. And I think about this a lot because the irony of it is like, you know, I, I do teach a lot about trying to build confidence or at least, rec you know, you can't really help anybody necessarily 
build their confidence, but you can get them to recognize patterns and mm. see see some of societal's oppression, society's oppression towards women. Um, but in many regards, I, I often did think of myself as a confident person, um, especially growing up. Right. So I did have, you know, those accomplishments that told me that like, oh, I can do pretty well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, math was, came easy to me. Um, it comes easy to most people in my family. You know, we have a family history of architects and engineers. Um, so I always did really well in school. So that gave me confidence, um, at least in my intellectual abilities. Mm-hmm. And I always thrived in school. So I had some confidence in that. So going to grad school, it was always a given I would go. Right. And I would say that is a privilege in and of itself that I was amongst a community where I felt that that was, you know, um, something that I definitely could accomplish. So on one hand, you had these insecurities like so many other women have. Yeah. But on the other, you were you also had the confident Christina that pushed you and motivated you to do stuff. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I relate very much to that. Yeah, you relate. Yes. Especially confidence yes. In, 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 in like intellectual capacity, right, in terms of studying. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I say a lot of women feel this because in the studies show that's because, you know, you can study really hard and then get an A and the A proves to you that you're good at what you just studied. Right. But when you get out into the working world, you can work really hard and no one necessarily tells you if you're doing a good job or a bad job. So we don't get that positive reinforcement that we crave, constantly seek. So it's harder to know. Right. What that next step is. And that, I think that's why I particularly love math. It's like you work really hard and you get the right answer and it's like, that's it. Like excitement. You did it. But in other parts of your life, um, it's not that clear, like what is success and what does it look like? And are you good at your job? And what does that even mean? And what job do you want? You know, what are you passionate about? Uh, there's are much harder questions to answer. Mm-hmm. And indecision, indecision is really, I am probably the queen of indecision. So in terms of indecision, of picking what you want to do for work and for school is very hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we, we talk about um, some tools that help you, mm-hmm. Why don't we first explore um, why this happens? What, in your opinion, mm-hmm. both from research and your experience, have you identified that is different between men and women? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, this is something really fascinating to me. I always saw for many years that like my brothers approached the world with like a div- different level of confidence in their abilities than I ever did. And granted, I want to be clear to the audience that everybody has different confidence levels. I have some brothers who are extremely confident and some who are not. So I'm not saying like all men are, are confident, but I've always noticed that men tended to skew towards more higher levels of self-confidence than myself and then the women I was around. And I was always kind of curious about this. So when, um, you know, the research started coming out about this thing with what they're calling the confidence gap, I was like, oh my gosh, wow. This is like, hits the nail on the head for me. And granted, there is research for and against the confidence gap. So you can find whatever you want. Um, But I've definitely seen this. um, And that's that, you know, studies have found that men tend to skew towards overconfidence and women tend to skew towards underconfidence, particularly in the workforce. Right. Like I mentioned, women tend to do good in school um, or have just as equal probability to do good in school. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, I, exactly what I told you about the school. I think it's like the constant reinforcement, the accomplishments. It's clear, mm-hmm. it's clear to how to be successful. And so many women, uh, because of society, you know, are, are um, aiming for perfection. And it's easier to get perfection in in the school, in in terms of your grades. But I, I in terms of the overall gap, um, I think there's a lot of reasons. But I think the biggest one is that you know, society, most societies, well, pretty much everywhere, <laughs> tells women. Um, that, you know, men are superior and women are inferior and not necessarily like in that language. Some countries will actually tell you that in that language, Um, Mm -hmm. but subconsciously and through the media and through, you know, everything, nearly everything, right? We've, you know, I have one great speaker, Sonia Renee Taylor, who says like, from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, we constantly are receiving messages that we're not good enough, Mm -hmm. that we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, that we're not skinny enough. We're not good enough as women. And there's entire industries that are created just to make money off of that. Like they want to make us feel bad about ourselves. And then they want to make money off of it by selling us tons of makeup and tons of dieting things and tons of whitening creams and tons of, you know, self-improvement things, right? There are people making money off of our insecurities. 
Mm-hmm. And what's so dangerous here is that they sell us as sell those products as something that they sell it as they were actually those products will were going to empower us when in fact they are just gonna make us focus more on our bodies and our image and deviate us from focusing on our goals oh, and yeah. achieve. So yes. And what you just said there is 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 the worst one, and, and it's the hardest to tackle. But the con- mm-hmm. like society is constantly telling us as as women that our value, the value of who we are is based on our looks and our weight and, 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 and our youth, right? And our age. So a lot of older women um, and uh, older than myself, you know, it, it's almost as if, you know, that in movies and things, like you barely see women over 40, right? And that's what like the media shows is that once women hits like 40, then she's not, it's like she's in a different genre. She doesn't exist almost anymore in the media. Um, so you know, we're constantly berated with these messages that that's what our worth is. And then it's very hard for us not to internalize that oppression and think like, actually, my worth is decided by how pretty I am or how thin I am or how how much other people like me or how much, you know, people that I'm interested, um, you know, uh, uh, romantically like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to break those cycles. It's very, very hard. But the first step is awareness. It's creating awareness. And then um, when you start to feel those things and you start to be overly critical of your looks to say, hey, hey, whoa, 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 you know, my value is not determined by how I look. And this is this is an incorrect message that society has given me and that I have digested subconsciously and I'm not going to accept it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same way, and you judge yourself, but you judge other others. Like it's also really important. And Sonia Renee Taylor, Taylor says this too, not just how we judge our own bodies. It's important that we stop judging other women's bodies as well and other women's looks as well and other people's looks and bodies and images as well. And take that focus, take it into our own hands as a form of social justice to take that focus on our body and our images as our value in this world away right and focus put it more towards what do i really value in 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 someone is who they are as a person how they treat people what they do for other people how they make the world a better place and that's what matters right and and you know i joke that it took me years years of therapy <laughs> to realize to have like an aha moment self realization that like better looking people are not better people <laughs> Right. That like prettier, thinner girls or men or whatever, this image of perfect that society feeds us doesn't necessarily make them a better person. Mm. And, you know, I had grown up in a culture, a Cuban culture that's very looks oriented. And from the moment of born, and it's my family, it's the culture. It's all about, oh, how, so-and-so is so pretty. So-and-so is so handsome. Um, judging everybody on TV by how pretty or handsome they are, you know, and particularly I love my dad to death, but I think he knows this about himself particularly my dad um, and, and my family in general. It's just always talking about looks um, from a very young age. And, and it just gets in your head um, from a very young age. And so I had grown up thinking, like putting people who are quote unquote better looking, so like look more like what society tells us the standard of beauty should look like, putting them on pedestals mm-hmm. and thinking that women who were like beautiful, like this perfect image of beauty were like better people. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking that men who were like this perfect image of beauty were better people, right? And mm-hmm. it took me a really long time to realize like that's not the case. Like looks don't influence if you're a good or bad person, or they don't make you a better person, right? Um, and I don't need to like revere and look up to people who are thinner or better looking. Um, and it was really, it was really life changing for me. And that was probably around like 27 or 28. Uh, like pretty late in life that I had that realization. So I'm hoping some of the women in the audience are men too. I know nowadays uh, men are feeling the pressures just as much uh, often to, to, to fit societal's image of what a man should and shouldn't be. Um, at least uh, in terms of their looks and weight and body shape too. So um, if you're out there and you're like me, yeah, try to try to realize that like these are the messages society has given you that a woman's worth is based off of her looks and her weight and not based off of anything else, her intelligence or accomplishments mm-hmm. to the world. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's really waking up to those messages and waking up to the fact mm-hmm. that, that 
digested them and just, you know, this term mm-hmm. internalized depression or internalized misogyny. I have completely digested these messages, um, these patriarchal messages and misogynist messages of what a woman should and shouldn't be. And they've influenced the way I think about myself and influenced the way I think about other women or thought about other women or treat other women. Um, and it's the way I treat men as well, right? This idea that putting men on pedestals, that what a man thinks is more important than what a woman thinks. If a man likes your idea at work, that's more important than if a woman thinks your likes your idea at work. Like if my husband or, you know, my male boss thinks that what I'm doing is important, that that gives it greater weight. So, you know, putting men on pedestals as well mm-hmm. um, is, is part of it as well. Yes, I did an episode just, about eating disorders and in my experience and what I shared with Elena my guest was that in our experience we don't have one girlfriend that actually hasn't struggled with body image and one of the things that we discussed funny enough was one of the things that you were bringing up that the moment me and Elena and some of our friends started getting started feeling better about ourselves and starting to let go of all of this need to be the perfect version of ourselves or the ideal version of ourselves was when we were trying to lead life of service. And growing up like you, I had a lot of men around me. I didn't feel that the discrimination was on my face, but rather subtle things like to my brothers, they would ask about sports and they would ask about their life in general. And to me, they would say something about my looks. And day after day, that really gets internalized. And then if we don't have that self-awareness to realize all this internalized depression, then we don't really know we have a problem. And we are devoting so much time and energy of our lives to these things that at the end of the day really don't matter. But then when we actually realize all of this, there's not just simply one button that we can turn off and not care about this. So from your experience, do you know anyone that feels more comfortable with that now? An example of a woman that feels happy and that doesn't spend too much of her energy thinking about all of this. Ah, do I even know a woman? Yes. <laughs> do I know one? One of all the women I know. Um, no, I, I do actually, I do. I know several. Um, and I've often thought to myself growing up and Carlota, I'm just so impressed that at your age, you're, you're willing, you understand these concepts already because I wish I had understood them at your age. Um, that's because I went to your workshop, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't just that. Come on, don't give me that much credit. You know a lot about this stuff. Um, so Yes, I do. And I've often thought to myself, and I even asked some of them, and I think um, I would say pull in a lot of women from my rugby team. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my best friends are actually really confident women and sometimes don't even get when I bring up these topics. They're like, oh, I haven't really felt that. Um, and maybe like one of my mentors admitted to having like zero of these confidence issues, mm-hmm. which I mean, is pretty impressive. But to be fair, she's also like, probably pretty darn close to the standard of beauty mm-hmm. and has never struggled with her weight. Just a naturally thin person mm-hmm. um, that, that people put in the media, right? She's, she's pretty stunning. Um, so, um, and I have often thought about that and I have one good friend, I won't name names, but I've, I've, I remember distinctly like her just never really caring about her weight in college, like never really like commenting on it or saying anything. And, um, and I was just always so impressed by it. And I did ask her once and I'm like, where, you know, how, like, how, what are you doing? Right. So can you, what can you teach me? And you know what she told me and a, what another friend told me who has less image body image issues is like her parents just never put any emphasis on it. Like it wasn't talked about. It wasn't mentioned. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like, yeah, like you're so beautiful. You're not so beautiful. Or like none of her worth from her family was ever linked to her looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and my other best friends like that too, and and she's all, she struggled with weight issues too, but um, not to the extent that I used to. And I would say I'm I'm a much better place than I used to be. Um, and she, you know, she said the same thing. Like her parents, it just it wasn't her parents didn't talk about it. They didn't talk about other women's bodies or other men's looks. They didn't go on TV and comment on movie stars. Never, never. Which to me I was like, really? Like that's all my parents do. <laughs> like my family does, <laughs> right? Um, and they didn't. 
also didn't consume nearly as much media. <laughs> that was like, you know, whether it was like not reading those magazines, which I honestly, I think magazines are awful. <laughs> and probably 99% should be thrown out in terms of what they do to women and our body images. Um, and, you know, staying off of, you know, social media and things like that. Definitely. But, but it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, I, I think I told you in one of the workshops, like a pivotal moment for me was not only realizing that like these were like the the mismatched messages that society was telling me that I didn't want to believe anymore and realizing that my family put way too much emphasis on it. Um, and that has really detrimental effects. Um, but also when I, you know, I, I used to, if, if I found myself just like staring too much in the mirror and like criticizing myself, I just said, you know what? Like, I look like me, <laughs> like not revolutionary, but like, I look like me. Like there isn't that much you can do to change what you look like, mm. you know? Um, I mean, there's a little bit. You're making me think of something. Um, there's this saying that vegans have three faces. The first phase is the one where you discovered this world of veganism and you started getting immersed in it. Then the second stage is when you're just mad at the entire world because not everyone else is vegan and they don't understand why this is better for the world. And, and then the third stage is the stage where you actually accept this to be the reality and you're not mad and you understand that this is a process that takes a long time. And maybe veganism is not even the thing for everyone, right? And so as you were speaking, I was thinking about body image as well, because what I recognize in my experience, I remember ever since I'm a little girl, there's this ideal version of, of myself that I not only expect myself to, to be and to look this certain way, but I also see that a lot of people around me expect me to be that. Or at least in my family, they would make comments like this. It was not uh, bad intended, but, but those comments were there, right? And there was the moment I recognized this. So just like in the veganism example, maybe the first stage is, okay, I understood this happened. Then the second stage, which I believe is the one I'm at now, is that I'm just angry at the world for making me, for putting myself in this position. So I feel like at times I don't want to put makeup. I don't want to do my hair. I just want to end all of this and I don't want women yeah. to put any time or energy in their body image. Have you experienced anything similar? And what do you think is the right balance? Because I think this professionally, for example, when you are working in a professional environment, there are certain things that are expected of you. Not necessarily that you have to go wearing heels, for example, but it is expected that you're dressing nicely. And I, I don't know, some things that I wonder Or, for example, do people expect you to wear makeup? Where is this healthy line in your experience? Or do you also struggle with this? Oh, goodness, of course. Yeah, of course. I love those stages. And I was thinking, um, I feel that way. I'm kind of in the anger stage about okay. society and all, all internalized misogyny. Because it took me way too long to figure that out. I think some of my friends were like slapping me on the face. Like, catch up, Christina, catch up. Um, um, but, oh, gosh. You know, the body and the image stuff, it's so hard. It's mm. just so hard. And I think probably if I had to say, you know, actually, so the reason that I finally got inspired to actually do this, to actually do these workshops, to actually talk to women about these issues was when um, I had my second child. Mm. And I didn't, we didn't, this time we didn't find out the gender or the sex. Mm -hmm. um, and so my first child was a boy. Mm -hmm. um, and so literally like, given birth, find out, right? My husband turns over and says, it's a girl. And I just had this feeling, just like almost like this dread, like this drop in my stomach, like, oh my gosh, like this is a lot of responsibility. And I want to make sure my daughter, like I, I told Hans, like I was like, my husband, I said, you know, if I could give my daughter one gift, hmm. one gift would be that she doesn't spend her whole life worrying about her looks and her body. Like, I just wish for Sophia that she can have that. And now for my second daughter, Aviva. And um, Hans, my husband said, well, if I could give Sophia anything, it's that I would give her confidence. Right. And, and I said, great, Hans. Like, well, how do we do this? <laughs> right. And this was uh, two and a half years ago. And that really set off my journey to like study as much as I could to like, how, how, how can I, how can I raise my daughter to not have these images, these issues that I've had with my body and my weight. Um, 
And it's hard. I wish I had an easy answer. I wish I had an easy answer. What I would say is, um, tools, tools. Yes. What I would say (laughs) tools for my daughters. Well, a big one is, is that is, is trying as best as you can to disassociate the the value that you place on yourself Mm. and that you place on other women based on their looks and your weight. So not saying like, I am better when I'm thinner. People will like me more when I'm thinner. People will like me more if I put on makeup. I will be a better human being. I will have greater worth if I look pretty. I will have, you know, a friend of mine's constantly battling views at five pounds, five extra pounds. And I'm like, what will happen? Like, Will you magically feel better about yourself when you're five pounds? Like, will your partner love you more? Will will your friends love you more? Because we love you the way you are now, completely, right? So, but I think like trying, really taking the time to reflect and and realize that the extent to which society tells you that your your worth as a woman is based on your looks and your body and realizing that that's a message you're not going to accept anymore Mm -hmm. is, is kind of the first step. And then reflecting on all the messages you have received, whether it's from your family or from the media or society, and deciding if you want to believe those anymore. Um, and then challenging your own beliefs towards other women in your life as well. And like, you know, we do this one exercise where it's just like, think of someone that you really think is like, that you just like admire and love in your life, mm-hmm. whether that's you know, your mother, a friend, an older sibling, a mentor. And then like, think to yourself, like, what do I love about this person? Like, do I love them because they're thin and beautiful? Probably not. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. do I love them because they're perfect? They're probably not perfect either. Right. Mm -hmm. You love them for so many other reasons that they have a wonderful heart, that they have a wonderful spirit, that they have a joyful life, that they do things for other people, that they care about everyone in their life, whatever it may be. Um, and realize it's the same for you, mm. right? Like people don't love you, Carlota, because you're beautiful or you're thin. People love you for everything else you bring to the table, mm. right? And how smart you are and how kind and considerate and how interested you are and how inquisitive, right? And, and, and that's what we have to realize. And that's what we have to try to love about ourselves. I know it's so hard, but we have to learn to love ourselves for many other things. And, and let me tell you, this is a lifelong battle. I have mm-hmm. met very few women, even older women, who've ever conquered this, ever. Um, so it's a lifelong battle. But, you know, the first step, like you said, is that awareness, that frustration. You're in that frustration, anger. And I think you're going to get to the point probably like me where you're like, okay, I've realized this. And now my mission, I think you're there already, is to spread it and say like, hey, hello, world. It's not all about how we look and what we eat. And throw away those darn magazines that are telling you it is so. And stop judging other women for the life of God. Mm-hmm. Stop judging other women for how they look as well and how, how much they weigh as well, right? Stop. Oh, the magazines that like point out the fat on women's bodies, like, oh, I'm just like, it's just disgusts me. Um, what we do to ourselves and what we do to other women. And I think that this, this to me is so, it's almost criminal, right? The way that media portrays women and media media makes us feel about ourselves. Because like you said, I know far too few women who have never struggled with eating disorders or constant worrying about their weight or over-exercise or anorexia or bulimia. And it's taking a really real toll, a real toll on us physically, emotionally, you know, um, people, women are cutting themselves, women are not eating, women are throwing up, women are, and, and it's just so sad to me. It's so sad, you know, and I had a group of, we work with a lot of MBA females and I had a group of them in New York and there were like 10 women from probably eight different countries all over the world. Um, and within five minutes, they started talking about like, oh, I feel so fat. I shouldn't have eaten this. Oh, the flight. Like, I'm just so blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, the five minutes of us meeting each other, like, this is what it becomes. Right? Like, this is what we want to talk about and think about. Right? And um, it's just, but it's not our fault. It's not our fault. And like, when you think, don't get mad at yourself either. Like, I shouldn't be thinking about this because that doesn't help. I shouldn't be thinking about this. I shouldn't be blaming myself. I shouldn't be worrying about my looks. And that's, I did that for a long time. Like, I'm being so vain worrying about my looks and my weight and my body. 
Uh, don't get mad at yourself and be like, nah, man, this is society. This is society's fault. Like you told me that my, my worth is dependent on being skinny or, you know, my looks or my weight. And it's not, it's not true. I'm not going to, I'm going to reject those messages now. Thank you. They weren't helpful. They've never been helpful. <laughs> and one of the, the, the most um, powerful things I, or I've learned a lot of it goes back to your thoughts and your thought process and the beliefs you carry and the narratives and stories you tell yourself. But um, I heard from one amazing podcast. I'll, I'll give a shout out to her. Um, it's called Unfuck Your Brain, Karen Lowenthal. And she talks a lot about body. So if you have issues, please go to her. I am not an expert um, at all. <laughs> um, but, you know, she says, like, think to yourself, like, is this thought useful? Not like, is it right or wrong? But like, is this thought that I'm telling myself, like, is it useful? Is it useful for me to sit here and say, like, I look terrible on Zoom. I should just turn it off. I feel awful about myself. Like, is that a useful thought? Is that going to help you in the day? <laughs> is it helping you or hurting you? Mm. Right? And like, and, and kind of starting there. Like, and that's how I'm started questioning. Like, whenever I'm like, okay, I'm working so hard and I'm a terrible mom. I'm like, okay, is that a useful thought for me right now? Or is it just making me feel worse? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and is it one I want to keep thinking? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, oh. And I know it's not that easy, right? I, anything, anybody that tells you, you just have to like think positive thoughts and your life will become better. I don't believe that either. Yeah. It's a process. It takes time. Mm-hmm. I've been exploring several methods. I went through one of the, one of the videos you shared that talk about the four steps to build confidence. But I've, I've been doing this, um, this course on well-being as well. And it seems to me that um, what all of them, all of these different methods say at the end of the day is that it's not only about imagining um how you want to feel so what would be the ideal scenario but is how are you practically going to get there and break that break that down in easier and doable steps um and that at the end of the day is also the thought ladder that you introduced to us in the um, in the workshop because if we just decide okay now i'm going to change my life i'm going to stop caring about my weight i'm going to stop caring about my insecurity but then it just doesn't happen from night to day so it's really about taking it easy and and i would say that self-compassion is also a big one because we're so nice to our friends whenever a girlfriend of mine calls me saying that she feels insecure i'm like no but you're awesome i'm sure that a lot of people in your shoes they wouldn't have handled the situation like you did you're doing so well but then when it comes to us we don't have that clarity Yes, yes. And I actually saw a really good quote. I've been trying to learn and, and do more media, um, uh, mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, one of like the mantras you had to repeat was like, I want to be a good friend to myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, that's, that's it, right? That's exactly it. It's this idea that like, in those moments, when you're feeling really bad about yourself, you're thinking, I'm not smart enough to apply for this job. Uh, you're going into an interview, like they shouldn't hire me. I'm terrible. Or, you know, looking in the mirror, like I'm, I'm so ugly or I'm so fat. And, you know, you know, you just have to think to yourself exactly that. Like, what would your friend say to you? Like, be a good friend to yourself. Like, be nice to yourself. Right. Like, no, actually I am really smart, you know, and I've gone through a lot in my life and I've, I've done a lot and, and they should hire me. Right. Um, and kind of approach yourself, like say to yourself exactly what you said, what a friend would say to you in that moment. And, and again, don't don't be hard on yourself because that just increases the problem. Don't say, oh, I shouldn't be thinking these thoughts before an interview. That mm-hmm. doesn't help, right? You're still creating that on yourself. But think, oh, gosh, I understand now that like society has kind of made me feel like crap about myself being a woman mm-hmm. and I'm being hard on myself and I'm thinking that I can't do this and I'm not smart enough for this job. Well, really, I am. I probably am. I just need to believe it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and kind of talk to yourself exactly like a friend would. And compassion is a huge point, and we do a whole workshop just on compassion. So I'm glad you brought that up. But um, yeah, and and that thought letter again, that's from Unfuck Your Brain. Mm-hmm. So if anybody is, is interested, check it out. Um, and it's a process. Like I don't want to sit here and say like I figured it all out. Like I don't look in the mirror and worry about what I look like, yeah. or I don't worry about my body. It's a process, and especially, gosh, I know to all the women out there who are moms. Once you become a mom, it's just even more complicated, right? Mm even more pressure like you know to try to get your body back after pregnancy and like so much out there like 
it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of, it can cause a lot of um, unhappiness. So really try to tackle that before you become a mom. But if you're a mom, mm -hmm. you know, spend a lot of time reflecting on these things as well and, and trying to be nice to yourself. It is, it's hard. It's hard to be a mom. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. It's a full-time job. And then for those of us who have a full-time full job on top of our full-time job, it's exceptionally hard. Um, no, it's hard for both. I actually think it's probably harder to be with your kids full-time than to, to work. So I got to give a shout out. I tried to be a stay-at-home mom for a while. It didn't work for me. So it's really hard. So I give a shout out to stay-at-home moms who are, who are doing it um, and think it's really valuable, um, but it's hard. So, um, and I also want to say, I don't know quite where this fits in, but I've also, in this quest of kind of, self-awakening to to internalize I've really realized too that we also have to you know me myself being a white presenting woman um that I am even though I still far from societal demands of perfection I'm a lot closer and there's uh it's a lot easier for me to get there because society tells us that perfection is a white woman right and it's a white skinny tall woman probably with blonde hair, fake or not, probably with blue eyes, high cheekbones, skinny arms, skinny legs, big boobs, big butt, little waist, right? Um, and that societal incorrect image of beauty obviously has influenced me a lot, but like think of the toll that that has on someone who isn't white, mm -hmm. right? And how just how negative that can be for people of color and for non-whites that this image of standard of beauty is, is something that's defined in through the white dominant narrative and white lens. Um, um, that is also really detrimental. So, you know, white creams, a huge industry in India. Mm -hmm. Um, I talked to a friend who's from South Korea, just like most South Korean, like miss South Korea all look the same and they've all gotten these surgeries to have these pointy, noses and high cheekbones like they're uh, very white skin you know so these standards of beauty don't just influence those of us who are white presenting and white dominant and part of the dominant culture they, they influence women across the world and they can be very detrimental to women across the world um, of all backgrounds and shapes and sizes um, and that too has given has helped me a lot in realizing like gosh like the standard impossible standard of beauty that I'm trying to achieve is actually not only detrimental to me, but it's extremely detrimental to every woman that exists mm -hmm. on this planet. And it's not fair. Um, and it's wrong. It's wrong. It's totally wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's given me something to reflect about a lot too. And, and, and you know, I, I also feel like I'm not in a place, I will never, no, the, the key is to not judge anyone who's doing this. It's hard to not judge, but to try our best to not judge because can't judge anybody dealing with these issues, um, but particularly when I am close, when I have at least a chance of reaching that standard of beauty, because I could dye my hair blonde, I could put on blue contact glasses, I could, you know, whatever, work out super a lot to have like really skinny arms and skinny legs, and I could get a boob job and things like that. Um, but not every, you know, that standard of beauty is unattainable. And that will not bring us true happiness. Oh, no, absolutely. Far from it. Far from it. And, and I often say, and I've seen it over and over again, um, that, you know, and I don't have the research on it yet, so I probably shouldn't mention it, but I will. But in my own life experience, um, I've actually found that it's, it's the women I know that are closest to that standard of beauty and closest to like perfect, whatever perfect means. Um, I guess, you know, it's like whatever Scarlett Johansson right now or something. Um, they, um, they suffer the most with it. Hmm. they suffer the most with the body image and the, the weight image and the looks image because their whole lives people have told them from a young age like you that you're beautiful you're beautiful that their worth is defined not only by their looks or their weight but by this constant reinforcement of people telling you how beautiful you are and telling you how wonderful you are because of your look or your body mm -hmm. um, so they've received those messages even more even stronger. And then when those messages stop coming, mm. people stop commenting that like, you know, maybe you hit a certain age or whatever. And they stop telling you that like, you're so beautiful or that this is it. Then it, it can be really painful. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've often in my life, the women in my life, those who are closest to this, you know, white blonde hair, blue eyed standard of beauty 
um, struggle the most, right? And then there's a really good um, model who has a TED talk about it where she says like, everybody like being thinny and pretty is not everything. Let me tell you, because models are really unhappy. <laughs> like they're thin and they're pretty, but they're miserable. And she, she being a model was saying that. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. so realizing that like the end goal that you think, like once I get to that end weight, once I get to that, you know, um, you know, get that haircut, dye my hair, whatever, make my looks this way, then I'll feel good about myself. That is false in itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's interesting that you brought the book about mindfulness because this is also something that I explore a lot. Um, that mindfulness, meditation, yoga. Um, at the end of the day, these are just tools that make you realize that your true essence has nothing to do with these roles that you play, with this um, tool that you have to move yourself in the world. But only when we recognize this as a collective is the moment that we'll start actually healing. But but definitely, because while you're in that struggle to lose the five kilos uh, or to dye your hair blonde, then you're not actually understanding that that feeling, that uneasiness that you feel is not about the five kilos. It's not about the hair. It's a spiritual void of wanting to belong and be part of something greater than yourself. Um, so, Christina, if you had the chance to travel in time <laughs> and give one advice or one or two uh, messages to the Christina that was leaving college and starting her work life, what would you say to her? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I think that's why I've built these whole workshops in the International Women's Weekend is I would say to her, like, screw all the noise Mm. and realize who you are and believe in yourself. Try your best to believe in yourself. Recognize that there's everything out there is telling you you shouldn't, that you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not skinny enough. Those messages are everywhere and, and you don't want to believe them anymore. Instead, you know, believe in yourself. Um, try to believe in yourself. Try to take the time to reflect and realize that your worth is not judged by how many accomplishments you receive, how many good jobs you get, what grad school you go to, what undergrad you went to, if you went to Ivy League or not. Um, and also, you know, if people think you're pretty or not, or if you don't have like the perfect looking partner or not um but really the value is who you are in a person and the how much you put into helping other people in your life um and finding your purpose whatever that may be um and I don't know I'm sure if I had had that confidence at that level maybe I'd be in a different place I'm good I'm okay with where I am But I often think like I didn't have the confidence to go to law school. I really wanted to go to law school. Didn't have the confidence to apply. Didn't have the confidence to take the LSAT. I think I should have done it. You know, Um, not to say I I won't now, but, um, you know, there are just things I think to myself, there's so much I could have achieved if I had just believed in myself. So that's what I am um, really trying to do is just help other women see it at a younger age than me. Find support. Um, amongst each other, talk about it, feel better about themselves, try in any way they can to um, change their thought process a bit and feel better about themselves on a, on a day, day-to-day basis and believe in themselves so that they have the confidence to apply for that job. They have the confidence to run for office so that they can change the things, that, the changes they want to be in their community, that they have their confidence to pursue a career not in fear that like I can't be a mother and a career woman, which so many of the young minds I talk to are are terrified of, um, and that have the confidence to really just to believe in yourself, even when maybe you feel others aren't. Um, and and yeah, I would just tell her back then that body image, that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is is who you are as a person, um, and the quicker you can learn that, the the better your life will be. But it's a process, so we're all learning as we go. Thank you, Christina. It was a pleasure having you here. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carlota. Keep it up. This is awesome. Keep interviewing powerful people out there um, and keep changing minds. I love it. Thank you for changing mind or continue to change mind. <laughs> <laughs> If this conversation or part of this conversation moved you in some way, please share it with someone you love who might benefit from it. If you want to keep updated on future episodes, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app. In case you're curious about some of the reference made throughout the episode or want to find our guest on social media, check out the links on the description of this episode. Last but not least, thank you for listening and connecting. See you in two weeks. Bye!